0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Praise God for Colin and Katie. Thank you for sharing with us. Praise God for a church that loves its neighbors and the nations and is willing to send couples like this and their beautiful children to the uttermost parts of the earth for the sake of the name of Christ. Before we get into our text this morning, I feel a need to pray for us, for our nation, for our time in the Word this morning. So let me me pray. Father, we we read blind Bartimaeus' words in Mark chapter 10 where he, this blind beggar, comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, we cry out for mercy. We are a people in turmoil. Our nation is filled with ethnic strife. Lord, be merciful to us. We're anxious about the pandemic and presidential elections. Lord, be merciful to your people. Our nerves are on edge. We are prone to frustration, quick tempers with one another over all sorts of different things, even small things. Lord, be gracious and merciful to us, please. Lord, with your mercy, give us compassion and courage, compassion to bear with one another, to be tender hearted towards one another, as our text instructs us that we read last week. Give us compassion to the unbelieving world around us. May we not be shocked that an unbelieving, unregenerate world whose hearts are dead act the way that they do. Yet give us compassion with with this courage, Lord, courage to speak the truth and love to a dying world around us that needs something far greater than political peace or economic strength. It needs the gospel. Lord, give us courage to hold up Christ before any other earthly allegiance. Give us courage, Lord, to face A future knowing that you indeed do work all things together for the good of your people who you have called together by the work of your son, Jesus. And finally, Lord, let us not miss this. Give us joy. You told us to not be surprised at the fiery trial that we are facing. And Lord, we know that our brothers and sisters around the world face this and have been facing turmoil like this for decades, even much worse than we are facing. So let us be careful not to miss this opportunity to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering, as First Peter 4 tells us, that we may rejoice and be glad because his glory is being revealed in us. Now, Lord, as we, as we give ourselves to this word, the best thing we can do is to pay attention to the word of God that you've written for us, to the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lord, do wonderful and glorious things as we look to this passage this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Let me read 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Our text this morning is verses 8 through 11, but I want us to remember the flow of Peter's logic, and then we're going to settle down in verses 8 through 11, and we're going to make some points along the way. If you're the note-taking type, there's going to be some, some things that we might be helped by taking down his notes. If you're not, if you're just the type of person that just listens and takes in, that's fine too. Let's engage the word of God together. Starting in verse three, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason verse 5 make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. All right, here's a summary of this text. Here's two things that I think this text is saying to us just by way upfront as a kind of outline of our text, and then we're going to dig into each verse. Here's what I think Peter is saying to us by, by way of summary with two sentences. One is that we are to work hard to grow in Christ and bear spiritual fruit. That's what he's saying there in verse 8 to be diligent or verse 10 be diligent. It it follows on verse 5 from last week. Make every effort. Work hard to grow in Christ and bear spiritual fruit. And then secondly be assured or find assurance of your salvation by looking at your sanctification. So I think that's a summary of this text. Let's dig into it. Verse 8. What is Peter saying to us? Verse 8. For if These qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says these qualities. What are these qualities that he's talking about? He's referring to what we dwelled on last week in verses 5, 6, and 7. These these qualities that Peter commends that we make every effort to adorn our faith with, virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. And Peter's saying here in verse 8 that these qualities should be increasing. So what is Peter saying here? I think he's saying at least a couple things. One, and we read this earlier, Springer read it for us in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have been saved God's grace comes to us for a purpose, and that purpose isn't merely to secure an eternal destination, although it is that, but it is to bear fruit while we live our remaining years here on this earth. Springer read Ephesians 2, as I just mentioned, by grace we've been saved through faith. Verse 8, It's a gift of God. And then look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are, this is the end, the result, the earthly end of our salvation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Peter's saying here is that we're saved for a purpose and that the Christian life is not meant to be static. It's not meant to be stationary. We should desire to grow and growing takes effort. Verse five, make every effort. Verse 10, be all the more diligent. And here in verse eight, he's saying that these qualities that we should seek, that we dwelled on last week, should be ours and they should be increasing, the spiritual fruit. But let's make sure we rightly understand spiritual fruit before we hurry on. I wanna give us three brief truths Hopefully these are reminders, three truths about fruitfulness. One, we need to remember that fruitfulness, all spiritual fruitfulness, comes from God first and primarily. He has taken our dead hearts, he's made us alive, he's given us his spirit that lives in us, he's gifted every spiritual Christian with everything we need for life and godliness, so anything good that comes out of our sanctification, anything good that comes from our Christian life, comes from God none of us even the most fruitful among us can look at ourselves and say look what I have done it is because of God working in us according to Philippians 2 for his good will and pleasure that we are even enabled to work out our salvation with fear and trembling secondly even though it comes from God we must cultivate This fruitfulness through, and this is so important, through ordinary, unspectacular, at times even monotonous means. So although our spiritual fruitfulness and effectiveness comes from God, we are to cultivate it. So salvation is a one-handed act. God does it. We are like swimmers that are at the bottom of the sea, and God reaches down through no effort of our own and saves us by his grace. Salvation is monergistic, one handed, whereas sanctification, the cultivating of spiritual fruit, is something that we cooperate with God's sovereign work in us. And so we cultivate it through ordinary means. The gathering together like we're doing, the reading of God's word, the praying together with other believers, and taking God's side against our sin daily. And then finally, rightly understanding, This fruitfulness is that we need to remember, and we read it, John read it this morning for our call to worship from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to remember that spiritual fruitfulness is ultimately not meant for us. God wants to produce this fruitfulness, these qualities in us that we dwelled on last week not so that we could have more goosebump raising quiet times by ourselves, but that our lives would be a kind of aroma that God uses so that the world can taste and see that God is good. So spiritual fruit is not primarily meant to dead end on us. In fact, fruit that doesn't get picked and eaten goes rotten. And so spiritual fruit is not meant primarily for us. So here's just a question before we move on to... Verse nine: Are you bearing fruit? Is this is this a general description of your Christian life? Are you bearing fruit? This this text we can't read this text without letting it press on us and ask us ask ourselves if verse eight is true. Are I am I increasing in these qualities? I think one of the problems of fruit bearing in the American church is just what I, what I refer to as the tragedy of low expectations. And what I mean by that is much of church culture is just geared towards, here's, here's success in the Christian life, is get as many people into the building as we can, put Instagram filtered pictures on our website to communicate to the world that something cool is happening here. Let's take a stand kind of for God's word, but say it in kind of a watered down way so that the world will still love us. And let's just all be happy that we're going to a church or moving into a building or or gathering in a building once a week when something exciting seems to be happening. And that seems to be sort of like the end game of fruitfulness in the Christian life. And it's a low expectation. There's no pressure put on us. We don't confront sin, we don't say the hard things, and we don't get in each other's lives because we have bought this unbiblical idea of the Christian life as just merely showing up and appearing to be an agreeable Christian on a Sunday morning. That's not fruit bearing. Now we should come and we should gather, of course but run away from churches. And we got a lot of military people here. You come and you go. I get that. Run away from churches that have low expectations for the Christian life. And if the expectation is merely just to gather and look cute for an hour and a half, run. Go to a a sloppy church that doesn't have a good online presence, who doesn't have cute people on stage and can't strike a chord if their life depended on it and a guy whose suit doesn't fit but who preaches the word and tries together to live the christian life i'm doing self-therapy again and i'm sorry i'm not sorry but i am doing self-therapy and hopefully some of you need this therapy too so the point is are you bearing fruit And let's not be a church that has low expectations in this. Do you realize that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're part of a local body of Christ, which is the clear biblical mandate for every believing Christian is that you have a teaching ministry. You're part of the teaching team, which is called the church. Maybe not in a formal way, maybe not in a way where you're getting up in front of a crowd and giving a lesson or a sermon, but all of us All of us need to bear fruit in one another's lives by the way we live together as a group of Christians. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's speaking to all Christians here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. So here's the point I'm trying to make, is that my fruitfulness depends on your fruitfulness and your fruitfulness depends on my fruitfulness as we do this together the question is that each individual christian that's part of a body needs to ask themselves periodically is am i bearing fruit and if i'm not why am i not and what am i going to do about it am i going to be okay with it am i just going to hum along Am I going to stay in the back? Am I never going to join the church? Am I not going to be accountable? Am I going to just kind of let nobody really know my name and scoot in and scoot out? And am I going to succumb to the tragedy of low expectations? Don't live that way, dear one. Don't live that way. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter says that, If a person isn't, just follow the logic, if he's not growing, if they're claiming to be a Christian, and they don't have these qualities, there's no fruit. Now this doesn't mean that we, there's different levels of fruit bearing. There's some Christians that will be very mature and very progress in the Christian life, and others that will struggle. I'm saying if there's not some fruit that this person is in danger of really deceiving themselves, and they're so nearsighted that they're blind. So what is this verse saying? Let's just think, think through the logic of verse nine. Peter's saying that the lack of spiritual growth and fruitfulness to some degree, and what I mean by some degree is realizing that different Christians are gonna grow in different rates and in different ways and, and to different levels, but the lack of any spiritual growth and fruitfulness puts us in a dangerous place. It causes us to lose spiritual vision. And it brings on spiritual gospel amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget that we are cleansed from spiritual, cleansed from former sins. So the point is, is that, listen to this, dear ones, especially Christians like us, who believe in the freeness and the hugeness and the unconditional nature of God's grace, we need to also not just revel in the beginning of the Christian life, but we need to let the scriptures put pressure, gracious, good, fruit-bearing pressure on us for the rest of the Christian life. The point is, For us, people like us, who love the unconditional grace of the gospel need to realize that spiritual growth according to Peter here is not optional. It's not something that we can choose from the buffet line, as if I'll have a little of that and a little of that, but not a little of that because that inconveniences me. And many, many Christians, or at least self-proclaimed Christians, live that way. And verse 9 is a rebuke of that. It's a warning. Say if you, if, you, if you think you can scoot along like that, you, you may be blind. Now, what are we to make about Peter saying here that this person has, who he's describing, or these people that he's describing have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins? Is Peter saying here that a Christian could lose their salvation? I, I think the answer to that is clearly no, because this would contradict a whole host of other scriptures that are are just a a mountain high in particular. It would would contradict what he said in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, where he says that our salvation is kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable, undefiled. No, what Peter is saying here is he is using this text as a warning against the false assurance that people might have for themselves based merely on their verbal confession that is then not followed by obedience to the Lord. Peter is rebuking nominalism. He's warning us against saying that we are Christians with our mouths only, but having no evidence in our lives that would follow after what we confess. This is a warning from the word intended by God to do the work of preserving and keeping and stirring his people up into obedience. And warnings like this in God's word are means by which God works out our salvation. It's by means by which he he stirs up in us this fruitfulness. So here's a clear implication, is that true believers will hear and heed God's word. That is the mark of a believer. Not merely that you raised your hand at a crusade or repeated a prayer, but true believers will hear and heed God's word. Now, listen to me. This does not mean that Christians will heed and hear God's word perfectly. We all know that. But to some degree, Peter is saying here, essentially, what we dwelled on in James for weeks when we went through James a few months ago. It is that if you say you have faith and there's nothing that follows on from that faith, then we can conclude that your faith may not be genuine. But be encouraged, struggling Christian. This does not mean that we will walk in complete obedience or perfect obedience. We should strive for it. But perfection comes in heaven. But it does mean that the balance of the Christian life is to be marked by taking God's side against our sin. Think of your life and your sanctification as a kind of like a stock graph on Wall Street that's generally trending upwards. There may be some dips. There may be some recessions. But as you look at the general progression of your life, Peter is saying here, is that it should be marked by fighting, striving, making every effort, being diligent to take God's side against your sin and cultivate in your life these qualities through the regular means of grace that God has given all of his people. That's what verse 9 is saying. Verse 10. And I think verse 10 is the heart of this passage. Therefore, we we know this, right? You you guys send me this little cartoon um, every now and again, every time I mention this, but just that cartoon that I grew up watching in the 70s, Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Therefore is an important word. Don't just breeze over it. Therefore, conjunction, it's connecting everything he's just said to what he's about to say, so because of all this, because, because fruit-bearing is so important, therefore, for that reason, because of that, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. All right, this is a weighty, heavy, beautiful, glorious verse. What does he mean when he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Does he mean that somehow we sort of activate, we finalize our salvation? No. So let's think about what does this verse not mean? What does he not mean when he says that we can confirm our calling and election by our diligence? It does not mean that we contribute to our salvation by making it happen. The Bible is very clear, specifically when it uses these words calling and election or predestination. Salvation is something that God does. And when you come across those words in the Bible, like God's choosing or God's electing or God's predestination, friends, if you are a believer, you should rest in that. They shouldn't cause controversy. They should cause great comfort. It's it's clear in the Bible that God does the electing and the calling. Listen to Romans 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So just think about the the temporal logic of verse 29 of Romans 8. Those whom He foreknew in eternity past. For means before. Knew in a sense of intimate love. Those whom He foreloved in eternity past, He also decided to determine their destination. That's what predestination means to be conformed to the image of his son. And if we were to read the rest of Romans and the rest of the New Testament, we know that the way that out of time determination he makes about those whom he's going to save, he brings about in time through calling them, through taking their dead hearts. And that's the natural state of every human being before God that our hearts, because the sin that we've inherited from our forefathers, from Adam and Eve, from our parents that we have participated in, our hearts are dead in sin, unable to respond to God. But when God, those whom he has foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in other words, make it to heaven with Jesus in time, He calls them, he causes the words of the gospel to hit their heart, and because the gospel brings life, when they hear the news, the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins and bore the punishment on the cross for them and extinguished it, so now their guilt has been removed, God's wrath has been satisfied, And Jesus has raised again from the dead and they now can respond to him with faith. That good news of the gospel hits a dead heart. This is the call of the gospel and it brings life. It doesn't doesn't find life and cooperate with it. It brings spiritual life. It regenerates a dead heart. It makes it born again and with that new life comes faith and now that awakened, now newly alive, born-again heart is able to see and savor and trust in Jesus and follow him. And that is all God's doing. So what is Peter saying here when he says, confirm your calling and election? He's saying again, essentially what James is saying is that you're saved by grace alone in Christ alone, but now through your life, make it evident authenticate it, validate it, show it to the world. Confirm your calling and election by the way that you live. It doesn't mean that you call yourself or you elect yourself or you agree with God's election. He's made you alive. Now, make every effort. Confirm, authenticate, validate, show, put on display the grace of God. In your life. So, wh- what does this mean? What's, what should we take from this verse, this all important verse? It j- friends, it means that Christians should roll up their sleeves and work at the Christian life. Work at the Christian life. Don't just have this great doctrine, sit in your head and in your heart, but let it work out to your hands and take this glorious news of the grace that God has made you alive by his sovereign calling and election. Now, fight sin, take God's side, work it out, make every effort, be diligent, do it, live together, struggle, wrestle together and glorify God in the process. That's what Peter is saying. And he says, if you practice these things, you will never fall. Now, practice <laughs> practice does not mean perfection. Remember last week we talked about looking for evidences of grace, not perfections of grace. And any time we talk about these things like assurance of salvation many Christians, let me just say a word here, many Christians suffer from a, and I don't want to use the word suffer, they have just been given by God a tender conscience that causes them to despair at times over their sin. And I think, by and large, that can be a gracious gift of God because it's causing that person to not, it's that, that constant sort of pressure that they feel is a kind of gift of God to continue to cause them to cling to God. But at times in some people's hearts, it will overtake them and become overly introspective and at times can cause them a kind of despairing of themselves that is, I think, at times a little spiritually unhealthy. And so as we are to be diligent and as we are to make every effort and as we are to realize that we need to bear fruit in keeping with our, our calling and election, let's remember, dear ones, that, that Peter is calling us for us to practice these things, not to perfect them. And the practicing, the trying, the falling and getting back up a thousand times tells us that we will never fall. So be encouraged, struggling Christian. A couple thoughts then on assurance before we move along to verse 11. Some thoughts on assurance, which I think is what this passage is all about. Two thoughts about assurance assurance comes when we see the freeness of our salvation and the fruit of our salvation. What do I mean by the freeness of our salvation? Assurance comes not primarily by looking at our lives and our fruit, although I think that's the emphasis of what Peter's saying in these verses. That's the aspect of the Christian life that he is focusing on here in verses 8 through 11, that be assured to confirm your calling and election by the way that you are pursuing these qualities that we talked about in verses 5 through 7. But even more primarily, assurance comes by looking at the freeness of our salvation what do i mean by that when we see that god has not saved us because of anything good in us because of any fruit that we would eventually bear then we realize that he will not cast us off because of anything bad in us do you see that god doesn't save you because of anything good in you or anything good that you will produce So just as a little aside here, let's stop saying about a person who's in the world and a heathen, whether they're a movie star or an athlete or a charismatic person that we know, oh, wouldn't it be great how God could use that person if God saved them as if God needs the fruit that that person might be able to bear by their natural abilities? Don't say that anymore, Christian. That's completely undermining the freeness. God doesn't save you because he needs you on his team. He doesn't save you because of anything in you. He saves you because of his free grace. He loves you because he loves you and his love is unconditional. It's not based of any, because of anything on, in you. He didn't choose us because there was something in us that was valuable to him. Therefore, his keeping of us comes from his unconditional grace and mercy, not anything in us. And assurance must be rooted in us seeing the sovereign freeness of God's grace. And what I mean by the freeness is God is free to love whom he wants, why he wants, whenever he wants, he does it because he is free to give his love away unconditionally. That's what Romans 9 says. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And so when we look at our lives and we see that we're still struggling, we first find our assurance in the sovereign freeness of electing unconditional grace. But here's Peter's point. That sovereign, free, unconditional electing grace of salvation must work itself out, must be confirmed, must be displayed to some degree by the fruit of our salvation, which is our sanctification. And so do you see how these two things go together? If you have one and not the other, you, 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 you're tipping the boat and you're going to take water in your understanding of the gospel and it will weigh you down. If it's all grace, all grace, then we're just prone to live how we want, and that's a dangerous view of the gospel. But if it's all work, all work, and not realizing that we're not saved by our work, but by God's unconditional electing grace, then we become nervous people who are man-centered in our Christian life. But it's the two, it's the freeness of our salvation. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But now Peter's saying, "Work it out, confirm it, make every effort, and you can, Christian, because God has made you alive." Right now, there's somebody in this room who's struggling. In, a, I mean, you're in a steel cage death match with sin and right now you need to look away from yourself to the freeness of grace. God didn't save you because he thought eventually, because of your own effort, that you would be able to defeat that thing. He gave Jesus to die on the cross for you. He redeemed you from it, and because of his mercy, he's left you here to let you go. Work out that salvation which has already been secured for you and the fight that you're engaged in, which is guaranteed that he will bring you through. He now is calling you to fight. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now make every effort to take God's side against your sin. The freeness of salvation and the fruit of your salvation work together to anchor God's people in assurance and oh, how we need this. Oh, how we need this. This Christian who's struggling in a death match with sin needs this. The Christian who's become complacent and is just kind of clipping along. You know, just, I don't know, just, just in leisure needs this because you, you, you don't know what tomorrow may bring. You maybe get hit upside over the head and you may have no idea what awaits you and something may come and rock your boat. You need to, in the daytime, dig footing so that when the night comes, you're ready to be assured in the gospel. Why is assurance so important? Well, one, it glorifies God. I mean, he offers to it, it's a gift. Think about like your parents buy you something awesome for Christmas and you just don't even open the gift. You're like, yeah, whatever. Thanks. Nice wrapping. Good bow, but whatever. I mean, that's just ingratitude. We should fight for assurance because it glorifies God. God is glorified in the security of his children as they see the freeness of their salvation and see the fruit of their lives and are anchored by it. Secondly, it fortifies us in our trials It fortifies us. It anchors us deep. It causes us to be able to weather the storm. It it causes us to, to be able to withstand the hurricanes of this world. Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed to me until that day. It fortifies us. And finally, it's a witness to the world. It's a witness, and oh how we need this. It's a witness to the anxious world. The world watches God's people in ancient ta- anxious times, anxious times, and if God's people are given to the spirit of our age, which is anxiousness and anxiety and fearfulness, we have nothing to offer the world. But when the world is falling apart around us, and God's people, although they deeply care about the world, are anchored in the reality that if God is for us, who can be against us it gives off a kind of aroma that the world sees, and they say, who are these people? And God uses our assurance to be part of the means by which he draws more and more of his elect to himself by the glory of the gospel. So assurance is important. And we end on verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I love verse eleven because it just redirects our, our our gaze. Peter's been talking to us about confirming, thinking about our lives, and and if we're not careful, we can we become so kind of now focused that we lose we lose perspective. In verse eleven, he he reorients our perspective just to make sure that we understand that the Christian life is ultimately. A forward-looking life. And so for in this way, in this way that you are working out your salvation, you're being diligent, you're making every effort, there will be, will be future tense. This world is not our home. This is not our best life now. We are going somewhere which will be glory. There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Christian life is not to be meant to be lived by these 80 and 90 years. We're not just meant to gather up principles by which we can live a more peaceful and functional life. I mean, there was this thing that came out a couple years. No, I shouldn't. I'm not going to. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. All this, this preponderance of study Bibles that, and if you have one, we can talk later. But that are geared towards you and your life situation. You know this—the the, the leadership study Bible. I, I saw it about ten years ago, and I just—I just wanted to—I just wanted to pitch a fit because it was all about how it, the, the unwitting—and I don't think this is the intention—but to me, it was a kind of symptom of the American. Christian church is that we take all of God's word and we bend it into how it can help me live a more functional life in these 70 or 80 years. That's not what the Bible is about. Will the Bible make you a better leader? Yes. Will the Bible make you a better husband? Yes. Will the Bible help you manage your money better? Yes. But that's not ultimately where it dead ends. It helps with those things so that we can confirm our calling and election and orients us to the place we're going, which is what verse 11 is, this place where we will be richly provided with an entrance. We are to be so heavenly minded that we will finally be of some earthly good. That's what Peter's saying here in verse 11. The logic of the Bible motivates us in this life now by causing us to think about then. Jesus says the same thing, store for yourself treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Don't bend the Bible into making your life more functional merely. Let the Bible bend you away from this world to heaven. Peter ends his letter, and we'll get to it eventually someday. Second Peter chapter 3, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since Jesus is coming back and judging everything, and there's going to be new heavens and new earth, look at his logic. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness Now? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promises, we are waiting now for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the point is, is, that the Bible uses then to motivate us for now. Again, a quick summary of Second Peter chapter one verses eight through eleven work hard dear one to grow in Christ and bear spiritual fruit work hard and be assured of your salvation by your sanctification but even as you're looking at your sanctification it is necessary it's not optional look to the freeness of grace and let's roll up our sleeves let's be patient with one another Let's pursue brotherly affection and love and godliness and knowledge and virtue and all these things. Let's make every effort. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's fight to live this out, to make our calling and election sure. And when we live this way, this rugged, beautiful way, God is more glorified, life is more satisfying, and we are rooted. We're more fruitful. We're more joyful. We're just just people. That God uses in beautiful ways. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for my friends in this room that have patiently listened. Lord, if there's some in this room that don't know you yet, Lord, <laughs> the, this verse is not saying that they need to try harder to be a better person. That's impossible this verse is calling them to look away from themselves to Christ who alone can give them his righteousness as Peter says in the opening of his letter that we are dead in our sins and we must be made alive by your sovereign grace and Lord if somebody's hearing this gospel they're hearing this news and it's stirring in their hearts Lord I believe that is evidence that you may be awakening that dead heart and drawing it to yourself. So Lord, if that's the case of any person in this room, Lord, would you save them? Would you give them a new heart? Would you cause them to look away from themselves and to trust in Christ right now and to believe that you're holy, that we are sinful, that we deserve your judgment, that Jesus died to bear that judgment on the cross and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. Lord, would you give them the eyes to see that, the ears to hear that, the heart to believe it, and right now, if that's you, dear friend, turn away from trusting in yourself and put your hope in Jesus. Lord, would you give them that heart to do it right now? And for the rest of us, Lord, that have become maybe lazy Passive, content Christians, content with our good understanding of doctrine, or content with a successful life. Lord, rouse us from our complacency and help us to confirm, to be diligent, to make every effort to confirm our calling and election, because you intend to use our lives for your glory for the world for my friends that are tender-hearted, whose consciences are racked with guilt. Lord, let them look away from themselves to the freeness of salvation, and then let them be encouraged by the evidences, not the perfections, but the evidences of grace that they see in their lives. And do this, Lord. Now may we respond to you as we sing in Jesus' name.